In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike interviews Alfred Poor, the founding editor of Health Tech Insider. Alfred shares his perspectives on how tech writing has evolved, what it takes to be a successful writer in a continually changing market. Here's a snippet from their conversation. Well, the old joke is, how do you make a small fortune in in publishing? Well, first you start with a large fortune. (laughs) Yes, right. (laughs) Um, But I'll, I'll say it's much more difficult to be a writer a successful writer at, in this market than it was 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, I know that's you kids get off my lawn um, kind of thing, but, but I think it's true. I will say, though, at the same time, there are always going to be people who are making a very good living as a writer and not just fiction. I mean, nonfiction, there's all kinds of people, you know, there are assignments out there. I have colleagues who still make a very fine living uh, as full-time writers. They're busy. Um, they work hard, but, you know, they, they also are, are very successful. Well, hello there, and welcome to Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors. If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, this podcast is for you. Alfred Poor, PhD, is the founding editor of Health Tech Insider, a website and weekly email newsletter that provides curated news and original analysis about mobile and wearable technology for health and medical applications. Alfred is known internationally as a speaker, writer, and analyst. Armed with a biology degree from Harvard, he spent the past 30 years reporting on a wide range of technology topics. For more than two decades, he wrote extensively for PC Magazine and other major computing titles. Alfred is the author or co-author of more than a dozen books, and he continues to be fascinated by shiny, sparkly things that can make a difference for the better in people's lives. In our conversation, Alfred and I spoke about the evolution of technology journalism, and we talked about what happens to society when you stop paying writers and journalists to write in-depth, carefully reported articles. How did the shift to online change the economics of storytelling and change the decision-making around which content gets published and which content yeah. doesn't get published? It, it's a really good story. And, I, and I'll start by saying I don't include myself uh, as, a junior, as a journalist. Um, I'm, I'm a technical writer. Um, and journalists are great people who go out and beat the bushes and find the sources and dig up the stories. And that's a really essential school skill set. And I don't claim to have that necessarily. But you know, so my, my focus is more on explaining things to people. But with that said, um, the big difference is back in the day when you had a magazine, you had a finite number of pages to fill. And you had a contract with your subscribers and your advertisers. With the advertisers, you promised to deliver eyeballs. And those were going to be the subscribers and the pass-alongs. And with the subscribers, the deal was if you subscribe and, and know that the, the, the subscription fee that you paid wouldn't even pay to get you the cover. I mean, the bulk of the budget comes from, came from all the advertising and still does for print magazines. But it was just sort of the good faith money that the subscriber puts forth and to buy into the process. So in order for the subscriber to keep renewing, you had to put in content that they wanted to read, but you had a limited editorial well. And so you wanted to put the best content into that, those pages that you could for the budget that you could afford. And so 
PC Magazine, for example, paid very well and got really great writers. Um, and so the content was excellent and the pass along was great and the subscribers were loyal and stuck with, with it for years and years and years. And so it worked really well. You go to the internet and it all changes. There's no limits. So it put up 10 pages on your website, put up a thousand pages. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, there's no more production cost in terms of materials or shipping or postage or any of that stuff. Um, and so the strategy becomes not to have subscribers who keep coming back, but to get page hits because the, when the page gets displayed, that's when the, the, the register clicks for the advertiser fee. And so the strategy becomes not to have the best content in a limited space. It's to have as much content as you possibly can across an unlimited space. And that means you pay as little for each page as possible. And in many cases, you don't really care about the quality of the content. You just want to have something in the SEO, the search engine optimizations, that's going to make somebody want to click on that article when they come across it in the search engine. And so that's why, in my opinion, the pay rates for a lot of online writing are a fraction of what they used to be um, in the print magazines. I mean, it's 10 to 1. Um, there, there are few opportunities to get paid what I was paid 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, it's uh, and of course, the impact on uh, society and culture uh, has been severe. I yeah, yeah. Know, and it's, it's more than just uh, a bunch of us, you know, writers grousing about how you can't make a buck doing this stuff anymore. It, it's a real, um, you know, it's become poisonous to everyone else, to the consumers. In, uh, in the technology press, it, it, it's, there's a, a specific hole that's really huge, and that's product testing. I mean, I used to go into PC Magazine Labs and I would spend half a day with a printer or a software package, you know, a full day or maybe multiple days with a software package. The model doesn't, can't afford to do that anymore. And if you go looking for a review, a product review on the internet, you'll find very little. There, there still are a number of sites that do some hands-on testing, but the majority of it is regurgitating spec sheets offering user reviews, you know, that like Amazon does all the time, which is, which is helpful, but it's not the same as having a team of skilled, um, knowledgeable technical people who can also write about it. Uh, yeah. Put these things to their paces and then tell you what's good. Right. Yeah. The idea of standards and the idea of, for instance, you know, underwriters laboratory um, or even consumer reports yeah. um, where you're comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges. Um, you know, this is, this is more than just uh, some kind of nostalgia or, uh, you know, for the, for bygone era. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's the situation that you've described, um, which you described so well has become really dangerous Yeah, uh, because there are no standards anymore. There's, there's a lot of baby that went out with the bathwater. Yeah. Yeah. This is, that's a good way of putting it. The baby did go out with the bathwater and, you know, and of course, obviously as technology, you know, people where I love technology, you know, I'm not going to complain about progress, but I didn't expect it to become so, uh, you know, the democratization of the, um, of the review process has become dangerous. You know, I'll just, well, it goes beyond the review process. Um, uh, I, I'm, editor and publisher and still write a bit for health tech insider which is 
a website about uh, wearable and mobile devices for technology for for health and medical applications. And we have a couple, we have people writing for us um, as well. And one of our fundamental principles for the site is that every article goes back to a primary source. Yeah. So, but if you read carefully around what passes for news these days and passes for journalism, it apparently is perfectly okay to write a full article based on somebody else's reporting. They did the work, they did the sources, and you're, you know, even if you're referring to it, you're still claiming it as your own. And you're also assuming that their information's valid. You know, but so a lot of news in, in all kinds of areas uh, online these days, it's just whispered down the line. Somebody picked up a story and somebody else saw that and they wrote about it and somebody else wrote about it. And for some topics where I'm knowledgeable, I know what they're writing about. Um, one of the biggest examples is there's a, uh, been some, some breathless articles about uh, how Apple Watches are going to be able to measure your glucose level without invasive technology, without having to prick your blood or, or anything like that. And the stories almost completely get it wrong. Um, it's, you know, it's speculative. It's not based on anything solid. There's no science behind it. And, and yet you see the same story repeated over and over and over again on lots of different sites. And it's interesting because I've talked to some younger people who are writing for different sites. And, you know, I say, well, you know, when you write for us, we require primary sources and they get this sort of (laughs) blank look on their face and say, what's a primary source? Yeah. And what this says to me is that you know, they're not, when I came up through PC Magazine, like you say, they had standards. There was editorial quality standards and procedures, and we had fact checkers checking the facts of, that the other fact checkers checked. I mean, you know, it's just, it was a really thorough uh, process for the whole publication. Today, you know, you hire somebody, they go out and write something, they post it on WordPress themselves without it being edited, and it goes live, and there's just no controls. There's no quality checking. There's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a free-for-all. And, and again, I think that's where it becomes dangerous, because these stories get a life of their own, because, well, I've seen it on four other sites, it must be true, I'll write about it. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, a huge, huge problem for all of us. So, uh, Alfred, uh, you mentioned earlier, you kind of, uh, you know, the differences between tech writing and journalism. Um, but but in truth, uh, you know, journalism is looking for those reliable sources, you know, trustworthy sources, people, you know, who um, will tell the truth. And also one of the, you know, the the main the main ways that we protect ourselves, we used to protect ourselves in journalism, was by interviewing multiple sources right. and let the reader decide who's telling the truth. Yep. Um, but this raises a, a question, which is, in today's market, in today's world, how do you find reliable sources for your technology stories? Well, again, um, go to primary sources. You know, I mean, um, so we'll see, I'll see a story somewhere about some new wearable technology or, or printed electronics that, you know, can be sensors on the skin or something like that. I'll go looking for the university where that research was done and find their press site where they have, you know, a news story posted about it. And that I'll use as a primary source that, you know, that I'll, I'll take, take it from there, or I'll go to the scientific paper that they published um, about it. Um, I think if you're looking at it, as a news consumer, uh, one of the things I watch for is 
if the outlet that I'm paying attention to offers a disclaimer saying uh, the New York Times reported this, but we haven't been able to confirm that ourselves. Or, you know, we've got this news from a single source, but we haven't been able to get a corroborating source yet. So we're not going to report on that yet. Um, those are the kinds of, of responsible reporting um, sort of earmarks uh, that I look for when I'm, I'm looking at a, at a news source and, and trying to evaluate the quality of their content. Cool. Alfred, what are your favorite kinds of stories to write? Uh, you know, what, what kinds of stories really, uh, you know, <laughs> do you look at and say, I'm going to enjoy writing yeah. this story? Um, two categories. The first one is a clever hack, you know, a new way of looking. I mean, one of the things about wearables like, you know, Fitbits and, and things like that is they're just flashing light at your skin and then have an optical sensor reading the, the, the light levels that come back. That's all it is. And they are able to infer so much valuable information from this, this ocean of data. Um, and, and those kinds of stories get me excited because somebody, you know, somebody looked at this and said, oh, you know, there must be some way to tease the information out of all that noise. Um, and, you know, it's, there, there's a company called Valencell that now can measure your blood pressure from an earbud. And it doesn't even need calibration from a pressure cuff. Um, it just it just knows. And now it's a that's a very scientific company. I know them well. I've been tracking them for years. They um, it, they're a science first company, and so they've done the testing. They've gotten the data. They've done the analysis. You know, so that's it's not just oh maybe this will work. Um, it's it's serious science. Uh, but those kinds of stories I love. The the other ones are the life changing stories. Um, whether it's uh, how Guy developed a 3D print model for children who are born with malformed hands mm -hmm. and so that they're able to create a custom mechanical hand for them. Um, and in that particular case, high school science clubs, Boy Scout troops, you know, um, college groups got in on it and have been building these things by the thousands um, for children all over the world. Which, which to me is just a, an amazing story. But it's also things like um, helping seniors who want to live independently at home and don't want to have a camera following them around their, their home all day. There's a couple companies, but one in particular from Israel, that has just a panel that sits on the wall and it emits radio waves and so unobtrusively can track the motion of people in the room, can see if you're standing or if, if you're fallen. It can even track heart rate and respiration rate, all unobtrusively, just this, this little panel that sits on the wall, you know, just blends into the background. So those kinds of things are just life-changing for people. And, and I, those, those excite me a lot. That's really cool. So, Alfred, you describe yourself as a health tech futurist. Actually, you describe yourself as the health tech futurist. Uh, what does that entail? What is a health tech so, futurist? So for me, a health tech futurist is admittedly a, a bit of a cheerleader. Um, uh, I believe that our healthcare system in this country and pretty much around the world is, is fairly broken. Um, costs are rising out of control. People have, uh, many people for many reasons have difficult times, difficulty in accessing quality healthcare. I believe that health technology is gonna get us out of that problem. It's going to drive healthcare costs down, 
we're going to be able to identify disease and other uh, conditions uh, early on so that they can be either prevented or treated early before they become expensive and leading to hospitalization and, and other really serious complications. Um, and so I think, you know, it's part cheerleader, but it's also partly being able to see that vision of how these things can help. And so when somebody comes up with a product that does solves one task, you can see, yeah, that's a great place to start, but, you know, it's going to turn into that same technology could turn into something that could help millions of people. And, and a lot of the interesting health tech is doing wonders in underserved areas. Um, there's everything from smartphones that can do eye exams that can then send that wirelessly to healthcare experts, vision experts. So you could have a relatively untrained technician in the field um, with just a smartphone and you know, huge areas of Africa have very little access to healthcare, but they have cell phones. And so this kind of technology can bring vision care to millions of people who otherwise would have no access to it. Uh, so being a futurist, health tech futurist is, is seeing how all that can be put together, connecting the dots and, and helping share that vision with others. I think it's it's perfectly okay to be, you know, something of a cheerleader in this uh, area because uh, I think you do have to be optimistic, um, and you have to see the good that can come of this. Um, you know, uh, we were talking earlier about the democratization of, uh, you know, technology reviews. There's certainly downsides to that, and there's certainly downsides to the democratization of uh, of healthcare diagnostics. But, you know. There has also been a significant downside to, you know, the the Western approach to medicine, which is you have to go to medical school for 100 years before you can become a doctor. And that has always restricted the number of doctors. And, and, your and as a patient, you have to get sick before, yeah. before you can get treated. Right. Which, right. which is, you know, the other half of the big problem. Right, right. Until you're uh, right, exactly, and uh, so I'm really happy that you're doing this, and and uh, you know, uh, and and I think again, you know, readers should be able to, or consumers of information, should be educated enough to see through, uh, you know, blatant cheerleading just for the purpose of selling something, and cheerleading for the purpose of saying, if we encourage these technologies, the world might become a better place. Right. Exactly. And it's a fine line. I, I, I know that I do the same thing. It's, uh, you know, uh, I just uh, three years ago, I co-authored a book about smart cities. And, uh, you know, there was no, uh, I was well aware as I was writing it that one, anything I wrote about was going to be outdated by the time the book was published. And two, that uh, technology is not the solution to making cities more livable. It's part of the solution, yeah. but the but but really, smart cities are about smart people. Yeah. And by smart, I actually I don't mean educated necessarily as much as I mean engaged and concerned, and uh, you know uh, you know people who want to be involved in the life of their cities. That's yeah. that's how you get a smart city. And and I think another piece of it is informed. Mm, yes. You know, I mean, one of the things about the opioid epidemic. Um, is that people see pain medication as the path to managing their pain. And one of, we, we write a lot about that um, in Health Tech Insider. There's just study after study after study about these non-pharmaceutical solutions, um, be it 
uh, forms of exercise or uh, physical therapy or uh, electrical stimulation devices and, and, and so on. And routinely, they're proven to be way more effective at pain management than opioids are. And, and so, you know, for people to understand that there is an alternative to a pill, that, you know, you can, you can address these problems in other ways that scientifically have been shown to be better. You know, we're not just talking about, you know, nutrition supplement kind of stuff. Um, you know, this is, this is real science. And so I, I also see part of my role as being a connector. Um, you know, there's lots of different projects going on. And, and I think Health Tech Insider gives industry people a chance to see what's going on around their, their industry, which they may not be aware of. And I think that can lead to all kinds of additional benefits for people. Good. Well, uh, more power to you on that. Thank you. I really, uh, I appreciate what you're doing. I'm, uh, you know, I, I practice Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how uh, beneficial it has been to my health, um, you know, my physical health, my mental health, my spiritual health. I mean, and and I would say that it is, uh, you know what they used to say, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Yep. <laughs> it's like there's, um, yes, I mean, I appreciate that doctors play a role, you know, in our lives, yep. uh, but I would like it mostly to be at a distance. Um, and okay. you're right about what you said before, the idea that, uh, you know, you can't see a healthcare provider until you're actually sick is, you know, we need to really get get past that, get beyond it and get over it. Um, but there's, there, there are a couple really hopeful developments in, in this area. And one of the huge ones is are the programs called Medicare Advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think a lot of people are aware of them, especially people who aren't in their 60s yet. Um, but basically, it's a form of Medicare um, where instead of reimbursing physicians and healthcare workers for specific services provided for a given patient, subscribers for a Medicare Advantage program, Medicare gives that, that organization a pool of money for each patient, for each subscriber. And if they don't spend it, they get to keep it. And so preventative health, all of a sudden, gets part of the feedback loop. And so they're rewarded for keeping their subscribers healthy. And so they're about exercise. They're about diet and nutrition. They're about sleep management. They're about all these things that are known to be important precursors for good or bad health outcomes. And, and so it's exciting to see something as big as that, um, taking that, that preventative health approach and being rewarded for it. Alfred, you've been very successful as a writer. Tell us, how can you make a small fortune writing about technology? What are the secrets for success, your secrets for success as a writer? Well, the old joke is, how do you make a small fortune in in publishing? Well, first, you start with a large fortune. (laughs) Yes, right. (laughs) Um, But I'll I'll say it's much more difficult to be a writer, a successful writer in this market than it was 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, I know that's you kids get off my lawn um, kind of thing. But, but I think it's true. I will say, though, at the same time, there are always going to be people who are making a very good living as a writer and not just fiction. I mean, nonfiction, there's all kinds of people. You know, there are assignments out there. I have colleagues who still make a very fine living uh, as full-time writers. They're busy. Um, they work hard. But, you know, they, they also are, are very successful. So I think... I think if I were going to give advice to somebody who is starting out or who is struggling with this at this point, 
I think that the two things I would say are one, recognize that nobody start, starts at the top. Um, you know, you're going to have to put in time, get your clippings, you know, show that you can do the job. I think it's helpful to pick a line. Um, you don't have to be stuck in that forever, but it's good to become expert or, or at least knowledgeable in a given area and to know what you know and know what you don't know. So don't go picking up assignments for things that you're not going to be able to do a good job on. Um, and it, this means you know, a lot of work. You know, you've got to read everything, all the news that's out there about your, your topic area and, and stick with that. But when, as you build on that, you'll be able to find other publications or within the same publications, uh, opportunities that will pay better that will give you long-term assignments that will give you a, a, some stability. So you know that you're going to be getting a certain number of assignments a month. And that's how you can build a, a solid base of revenue that you can then expand your career on. Good. That's excellent advice. Alfred, thanks for taking the time to, uh, to chat. Um, I love conversations like this. And of course I love uh, speaking with other writers who have, uh, you know, managed to survive and, uh, and thrive. Um, well, thank you. This has been great fun, and I'd love to do it again sometime. Okay, that was my conversation with Alfred Poor, founding editor of Health Tech Insider, a website and weekly email newsletter that provides curated news and original analysis about mobile and wearable technology for health and medical applications. I hope you found our dialogue interesting and informative. That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors, and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.